When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. For most of us, the arts are a great source of pleasure, but could making art actually be good for your health? Susan Maximan is the founder and director of the International Arts and Mind Lab at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, where she studies how the brain and biology change when we participate in the arts. She's the author of a new book drawing together her findings called Your Brain on Art. She wrote it with Ivy Ross, the Vice President of Design for Google's hardware division. And both authors joined David Malone for a live stream to tell us more. I have to say, I felt the book was rather timely. I don't know what it's like in America, but we have had several governments here who assure us that um, the route to a happy life is to do less of wasting our time, however pleasant it is to waste our time on arts and to just concentrate on the important stuff in life, science, technology, engineering and maths, and that this will make us successful as a country and happy as people. Do you agree? Well, I think, you know, we've been trying that for a while. We've been optimizing for productivity since the Industrial Revolution, thinking that would make us happy. And I think we can all agree it has not. So Susan and I wrote this book to really bring awareness that if you look back at indigenous tribes, we were singing, dancing, drawing, painting, storytelling, and they didn't even have a word for it called art. It was the way people lived. It was, it was culture. And that we dropped that along the way because we thought we weren't good at art or it was a nice to have or a luxury. And it is our birthright and we're wired for it as science is now proving. And that's the exciting part. Yeah, I would say um, for all the right reasons, we've done all of the wrong things. Uh, You know, we've wanted to be more innovative and more creative and more productive and, you know, solve big problems. But the way that we started to do that was to say, oh, let's take what we consider ancillary or a nice to have out of the curriculum of schools and in our everyday lives. And as a result, we really have flatlined in so many ways. And 
One of the things that is on my mind today is just the incredible amount of serious mental illness that has resulted in us not really being able to use um, what Ivy said is our birthright, this idea to be able to create and to use these neural networks um, that have really been laid down for us to have very whole, rich physical and mental health lives. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's something very interesting in the book that you you. You, raising the idea of of mental illness because mental illness is, is is often portrayed as well. Yeah, modern life is very stressful. In other words, we've got too much of something in modern life, too much busyness, too much stress. But your point is, well, that may be true, but we're also uh, another important factor, perhaps even more important factor, is what we're missing in modern life. Yeah, yeah. You know, we were fortunate to interview Eo Wilson, the evolutionary biologist that um, passed away right after, shortly after we spoke with him. And he made some really interesting points about the, the way that we humans have really evolved. And that there's a term called use social, which is that we need each other. We need to understand each other um, for our very survival. And so when you think about how we do that or how we don't do that, the statistics around um, isolation and loneliness are so great, but also this ability to be able to share our voices with each other. And so we know that things like being able to tell a story, to share our stories, to be able to dance and understand what are those those movements and emotions that we need to share that you can't share through through language only or how we're using things like expressive writing to be able to help us understand how we feel so that we can come to terms with that even if we don't share it with anybody else and how that actually can even lighten our cognitive loads to help us feel better so there's so many ways like doodling or humming that in, use different parts of the body. Uh, humming you know, activates something um, called the parasympathetic nervous system and the vagus nerve. And just the act of humming actually helps to lower cortisol and bring us back into a homeostasis. And these are just some of the examples. Yeah, because I don't think we're going to be able to get rid of the stress that we have in our lives, but there's certainly ways that is within everyone's reach through some of these modalities that, as Susan says, you, we can lower cortisol in 15 to 20 minutes and of doing some of these activities and you don't have to be good at it. Yes, that's something that you make a lot of in the book, that the art isn't about the product, it's the process. So you don't have to think, well, I'll never be as good as Picasso, so there's no point in me embarrassing myself. <laughs> yeah, we do, because I think so many people have stopped making art because of the judgment comes in. And I know, you know, Sir Ken Robinson did an experiment where he went into kindergartens. Everyone's hands went up when he said, who's an artist? And by the time he got to third or fourth grade, no one's hand oh, went really? up. And yeah, and that's because along the way, whether it's teachers or parents, they said, no, that's not the way you draw a tree. That's not the way you do that. And it's that is the most horrible thing you could do because it shuts down the creative expression uh, piece of us. And then you know, people then put the arts aside and said, well, it's clearly not going to be my profession. I won't even touch it. Whereas now we're finding out, no, it is, we're wired for it. It needs to come back into our lives. And it is the act of doing or even beholding that changes our brains and bodies. You don't have to be great at it. A lot of the, the neuroanatomy and neurochemistry that you deal with in the book, it all comes back to the limbic system, doesn't it? That the arts seem to be connected into those parts of the mind 
which deal with our emotions and the the feeling part of us rather than just the purely rational um, prefrontal cortex. Well, it's interesting, you know, even if you step back a little bit um, further, you know, we are literally born wired to learn, right? We are born with 100 billion neurons and those neurons connect at a synaptic level. And so all of the ways that we bring the senses, all of these sensory experiences into our into our brains actually begin to create those synaptic connections and form these neural pathways. And what we know now about the arts is that they really align a uh, very diverse um, form a multi-sensory, multi-system complex of structures in the brain that connect sometimes simultaneously. And so the limbic system is certainly involved as is the amygdala. Um, you know, I always think it's interesting that in, in, in when you look at sort of the brainstem and where the limbic system sits, the, the, the auditory cortex, the um, somatosensory cortex, the cerebellum where, um, and the occipital lobe in the back of the brain, where all of these sort of initial kind of inputs come in are kind of in proximity, right? And, and those, of course, were the parts of the brain that came on early. So the limbic system, the, the, the emotional piece, the hippocampus where we process memory, all those things came on pretty early. The prefrontal cortex came on later, right? But so, you know, these systems work with each other. And I think, you know, we do know that the initially as we bring in sensorial information, it's first around emotion and feeling, and then it gets turned into cognitive thought, right? And that's moderated and, and, and regulated often by the um, default mode network. And so when we start to understand the complexity of the way the arts and aesthetic experiences really use so many parts of the brain, um, but yet this emotional brain is so intuitive, instinctive, ancient, and reliable. And I think Ivy makes a great point in talking about um, some of this work around how we think and I mean, you give the quote because oh, yeah, yeah, Julie Bolte-Taylor, who's a neuroanatomist, says, you know, we think we're thinking beings that have learned how to feel, and we're actually feeling beings that most recently learned how to think. And when you think about that, it totally turns things inside out, because if we are first and foremost designed to be feeling beings with a little bit of, you know, recent thinking capabilities, then you understand why igniting the sensory systems is like the most important because that is how we're wired is to take, take that in first and foremost. And Susan and I did an experiment in 2019 at the uh, Milan Design Fair, Salone, uh, which was really the first time we gave people a sense, the public, of the fact that their body is feeling all the time. What we did is we had Three, we had an architect we worked with, Suchi Reddy, who did three different rooms, full-size rooms. Each had uh, different textures, colors. It was a living room. Textures, colors, lighting, sound, scent, artwork. When participants came to the experience, they got a band that the Google Design Group and Susan's Lab worked on that had sensors in it that was taking different physiological uh, information and working it into an algorithm that was able to determine in which room does your body, not your mind, feel most at ease or most comfortable. We asked each participant to spend 
uh, five minutes in each room, no talking, no devices, just be. That's why we call this space for being. So meaning take it in, look at, you know, smell, look at the colors, touch. And then at the end of the experience, we took the band off. It was given to a band tender who downloaded your data. And of course, being Google, we then deleted it, but not before we were able to show you how your body was feeling in each of those three rooms. And we started out by saying, which room did you like best? And someone would say, oh, the second room I really liked. And it's like, well, what, look at this. Your body actually felt the least stressed or quote unquote, the most at ease in room number three. And Susan and I were like, this will be a failure if everyone, what they think is also what they what their body was feeling. But luckily, uh, it was like 50, over 56% had a mismatch. And it was a big aha, because this idea that you could walk into a place and, you know, cognitively be thinking, I love this room, maybe because you saw it in a magazine or it reminds you of something else, but your body may not be comfortable in that room or feeling at ease. So you know, at the end, journalists had said, oh, is Google going to do a band that I said, I don't want to walk around in a world where a band has to tell you how you feel. This was an exercise designed to explain the science of neuroaesthetics, which is, you know, what we take in through our senses. Um, and also the fact that we are embodied beings and we're feeling all the time. And we have agency over what we surround ourselves with that could make us feel either more stressed or less stressed or more at ease. I was fascinated by the talking about what children learn and how how they express themselves. Because it, when I was reading the book, I was reminded of, of the fact that children learn to sing before they learn to speak, and that you often get children who can sing all the lyrics to a song, but they couldn't speak them. And so that, that there's something in our evolution that rhythm and sound and song those 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 things that have that aesthetic element they're more ancient and they're more, in some sense, more central to to our who we are than what we learn later in school. And it does seem a dreadful thing, if that's the case, that then when we get to school, they say, we'll stop doing that and, and here's some algebra to learn. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying we shouldn't learn algebra, but if that's it, that's doing damage to the children, isn't it? To, I mean, we should, as parents, be saying, no, 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 where, where, where are the crayons for my child? <laughs> Well, we're seeing that now, right? We're seeing the results of that experiment where we haven't had art in schools that's been slowly but surely taken out of um, our schools in the United States and I think in in your country as well. And what we're seeing is you know, much higher rates of mental distress, but also academic achievement has also plateaued and in some cases gone down. And so, you know, arts used to be the kind of thing in schools that were what they called enrichment, right? You wanted to be a full um, citizen. So you needed to understand the classics. You needed to understand sort of the, the, the arts in a kind of high art. Um, or then you could take art and you could learn how to be a great pianist or a great painter or, you know, even maybe a creative writer. But what I think, in, and both of those things are gone. So even if you had those as kind of, you know, something that was enrichment, or then there was a movement that was saying, oh, well, the arts are good because they'll help you learn another subject. They might make you better at math or make you better at science. Well, that's also been pulled back. And the reality is that the arts in and of themselves are content. They help us build executive function. They help us build creative thinking. They help us build collaboration, self-regulation, identity, character, 
all of these very critical skills that are important for future workforce. And so what we've basically done is, is first we commodified them and then we tried to make them supplemental to other quote unquote, more important things like engineering, STEM, all of that. And so I think what we're seeing now is that as they have been sort of relegated to after school programs, maybe summer programs, children are not building the kind of neural capacity that the arts by their very nature, as you said, singing, dancing, writing, um, this kind of imaginative play that's inherently part of, of, of what makes us our strongest people. And there's a resiliency piece that gets lost too. So you're not building these strong neural pathways. You're not building these capabilities to be agile. And then you move into older ages where there is conflict um, there is trauma, there may be big traumas and small traumas, we don't have the resiliency and we haven't built the muscle to be able to wade through those, even if, you know, we're always going to hit something that's difficult, but it's how you move through it. And by leaving the arts on the table, on the table, we're leaving a tremendous capacity to be able to help us navigate we're talking about mental health now, but I'll also argue for physical health and for ultimately what we all want, which is to flourish, right? We want to amplify who we are, not just get by. And so the neurobiology is really clear around what these types of experiences offer us in early childhood that have just been, you know, mis misplaced. And, you know, you mentioned mu music because of the rhythmic nature of it. It's particularly important and it's where actually the same place in the brain where poetry resides because of the rhythmic nature. And, you know, cause we're all just vibrating atoms to different, I think, you know, numerical formats. And so it's a thing where they, and in fact with Alzheimer's, right, Susan, in terms of music, it goes to different parts of the brain. So the reason it will help people with Alzheimer's is because it goes to so many places. So when you lose your ability in one part of the brain, you can get it back online in others. Yeah, the encoding, I was just reading about this this morning. Um, you know, when um, people are, are really trying, trying to understand why when you have dementia or Alzheimer's, someone will sing to you or sing with you and that, that comes back. And it's a really, it's a really an extraordinary phenomenon that we encode music first in the hippocampus um, in the sort of short-term memory, but then it's also distributed in other parts of the brain. So encoded in the cerebellum, the auditory cortex, sometimes partly in the prefrontal cortex. And so, and you're mentioning um, the limbic system in the very beginning. Music, autobiographical music in particular is so salient and is so emotional that we have the ability to be able to recall those things um, just yesterday, my husband and I sing, visit a cousin who has Alzheimer's. And yesterday I was playing around because it's Easter. And I was like, let's see what if Wendy can remember. Here comes Peter Cottontail. And she was like, hopping down the bunny trail. And like this, you know, she just completely remembered a song that she probably hasn't heard in 40 years. And it's extraordinary that and I said, Wendy, how do you know that song? And she said, my mother. And so, you know, we connect these things together in our brains and our brains are so unique that that song for her meant something, you know, somebody sitting next to her may not have been able to pull that forward, but there will be something that they can pull forward. Yeah. I mean, I, that spoke to me because my, um, 
My dad went and got um, dementia of some kind. He was away with the fairies most of the time. Is that an expression you use, away with the fairies? Um, no, but okay. um, yeah, I love, I love that term. Okay. Um, and so he, would, he, he wasn't in touch with reality, but what I found is I could go in and I'd read him poetry. Mm-hmm. And as soon as we were reading poetry, he snapped back to himself and would be able to have a discussion about the intricacies of this poem and this poet and compare it to other poets. He was as present as he'd ever been. And the moment we'd finished with it, he was off again. This mm-hmm. was the portal that seemed to allow him to connect all the parts of himself, which he would have been losing. So I, I, when we, that part of the book, I, I thought that's, yeah, that's, that's brilliant. And, yeah, that trigger, right? Yeah, we see that. I mean, there's a video going around, I think, Susan, you saw it too, where a young woman, it was her wedding day, her father, total dementia, didn't even recognize her, but she wanted him to walk her down the aisle. So she took him outside, gave him a paintbrush, and you watch him start to paint. And it's after about five minutes, he looks up, he looks at her, he goes, oh my God, you look beautiful. And she says, I'm getting married today, dad. And you need to follow me and walk me this way. And he stayed lucid for, you know, like 45 minutes to an hour to the point where they could get the ceremony, but it was literally because she handed him a paintbrush and paint, and he just got into this other part of his brain, and you know that ignited and brought him back. It's a beautiful thing. It's it's you know that happens, and yet that's so remarkable that it deserves to be studied and understand. You know, and now science is, and we do understand, and so we need to be doing the arts more in our life. Well, and also just to add to that, there's that the other one that is easy to find is the Swan Lake dancer who begins to move like she's in her 20s to Swan Lake. But, you know, we know a lot about how the brain changes in this in, in this particular space. And yet um, we talk about schools, not understand. We know a lot about how art helps children in schools. We know a lot about how art helps people with dementia or Parkinson's or other kinds of neurodegenerative illnesses but they're not well-funded and they're not well-supported. And the people that are practitioners that are working there makes it very difficult for them to make a living. And so there's a whole movement around the world to really start to create sustainable models for ensuring that the arts in health and education and public health and community development is more present and more reliable. And so I think that's another area that we're really interested in in thinking about as we move forward in this new field of neuroarts. Um, well, Ivy, I mean, as a as a representative, you are here to speak for the entire tech industry. I'm sorry to tell you. Um, oh no, no, sorry, no. <laughs> sorry, you, you can't back out now. Um, but we, you know, when we think of uh, the, the the kind of the pressures of the modern life, most people reach for the tech. It's 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 you know it's it's Google or Microsoft or Facebook or someone. Are the tech industries with people like you beginning to say, right, it can't just all be about algorithms and 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 mathematics. It's got to include this aesthetic experience. Oh, for sure. Well, two things. First of all, tech, you know, I believe in technology that's here to amplify our humanity. Doesn't take us out of it, but amplify it or be helpful. And so first I want to say there is technology that is doing remarkable things. Um, you know, people are using in hospitals. VR headsets with um, a program, I think it's called Snow Globe, that you know patients who are in pain uh, will will be in this setting in Alaska with snow and will feel no pain when their bandages are changed. Or digital arts being used 
for a, a child's game for AD, to help ADHD. But I do think actually technology is forcing us to be more creative because in general, well, first of all, I believe in a balanced diet. I mean, there are remarkable things about my technology. Like I, we wouldn't be able to talk to you if we didn't have this technology, right? And, and share ideas and connect. Um, but I also make sure that there's time where I walk away from it and pick up my coloring you know, pencils, et cetera. But when I say it makes us more creative, as technology is able to do more and more things for us that in my mind should remain helpful to us, we need to become more imaginative. We need to be more of what only us humans can do. And so I think it's gonna push us to these creative imaginative places, which is a good thing because we're gonna be co-creating with technology to uh, create new things that we don't even know exist. So I actually, um, it's like anything else. We can, whatever, you know, technology, I looked up in, um, the definition is anything man-made. We tend to think of it as screens now, or but it's really anything man-made. So a car, a skylight, a window, and those things, a car can be helpful to you or it can hurt someone by hitting them. So we just all have to use technology for its benefits and have a healthy diet of, of um, even with my designers at Google, at times I bring in a sculptress and have them work with clay, you know, get off the computer, not even design on the computer, but start to use their hands and work with clay because it puts you in touch with clay. Anything that uses your right and left hands are your conscious and unconscious. So um, it's particularly good for you. And then, you know, the next day go back to working on the computer. So I think it's all about a balanced life. But I, like I said, I also think technology is playing a part. Um, there's also a woman in MIT who's working with dementia and Alzheimer's. It's using sound and light to activate the brain to re-knit it, re-knit itself in some ways. Susan could talk more about it, but that's technology. Like she started with a, a bar, a big bar that people had to sit in front of for an hour, but it was, it was LED lights and sound. And then she found that the combination of 40 hertz plus a certain sequence of light activated your brain in a different way. And the FDA just um, approved her to continue working in this way. So it, it really is both and, I think, is the way we have to look at it. And, and that work is for dementia. And so what she's finding is that the brain's waste system is actually taking out some of this um, amyloid and plaque and literally sort of cleansing the brain. And it's extraordinary to see the way technology and sensorial systems or aesthetic experiences. Another one that's worth mentioning is right before the pandemic, there's a researcher at Mount Sinai named David Petrino, who um, was working with uh, sports teams because after a highly um, energized ex sports experiences, a lot of the, the professionals would be on their, their phones for hours just trying to come down from the high of adrenaline and win or lose. And so the next day, their performance was horrible because they didn't sleep. They were, you know, reward, distraction, all the things that technology can, can do for us. Um, so what he created was a space with light, plants, visuals of nature. And what he's found in his early research was just 15 minutes reduced cortisol 
increased dopamine and brought the these, these professional sports athletes back to a state of homeostasis. Then COVID hit. And so instead of moving forward with the sports work, he took these rooms and created what he called recharge rooms in hospitals where healthcare workers were inundated. So he had plastic flowers, kind of LED candles, really rudimentary uh, visual imagery and sound of nature and had healthcare workers come into those spaces. And what they found was that same thing in a very short period of time, between 10 and 15 minutes, people felt relieved, renewed, and had a greater sense of gratitude. So you can easily see where, you know, I was talking about a digital diet where, you know, being able to modify how you use technology and how you use, in this case, a kind of a human built environment that was biophilic to help create that. And you could just easily go outside and have those experiences as well. So we often talk about nature being one of the high, is the highest form of aesthetic experience. And that's because it has all the elements of neuroaesthetics. If you walk out in nature, there's temperature, sound, color, shape, light. And so, you know, we uh, say here, you know, some doctors are prescribing nature pills, literally telling patients, go out into nature 15 minutes a day. No, there's all through the book, there's a there's a sort of a an interesting ricochet back and forth between the way you talk about language and the way that in art, it's a kind of a language, but it's it's a language which is more to do with the body than with your eyes and your your, your brain. And it's it, I, I got this feeling that there was a that you were in some ways describing there's a kind of a conversation, there's a kind of a language which our body has and art is very much a part of it. And it's as if we've been training ourselves to become deaf to the language which our body is trying to use to say, hello, hello, I've got something I need to tell you. <laughs> Did you mean that? Have I, have I read that right? Or have I gone off on a strange tangent? A friend of ours, um, beautiful man named Fred Johnson, who's in the book, uses this term called arts are the language of humanity. And that, in fact, there are so many things that the arts tell us that words, words or thought alone just can't. And I, and I think, you know, we, in the very beginning of the book, we talk about the aesthetic mindset. And that, that is this idea of um, being more curious, uh, having a playful exploration of the world, having a better uh, appreciation of the sensorial world and your and how you bring in those sensorial experiences and this idea of being a maker and a beholder and there's a there's a there's a short quiz in the front of the book it's 14 questions that basically just says where do you sit on these things and there's three different metrics that and then they, there's a cumulative score and i think what we are saying is that we have been so out of our bodies and really in our cognitive minds that we've left so much on the table. And that's whether you have self-agency and you are moving through this on your own. You know, Ivy mentioned this earlier, like these are things that are accessible, affordable, and immediate that you can do. There's also opportunities where you may need to work with um, trusted advisors and therapists in any art form or in psychology or psychiatry, rehabilitation to use the arts in a um, more 
sort of relational way. And that's great too, but that there's, and there's also prevention and protection and just practice for well-being. So when you think about how you being in your body changes and knowing how you feel and knowing how, what you want to express, how that changes the lens, you know, just by shifting that aperture slightly, you start to feel and, and, and move in the world in a very different way. But I think you're right. It's like tapping into, we're talking about what's in your heart and in your body versus what's in your cognitive mind that tends to worry, overthink, you know, tell yourself the same stories. And yet we have this wealth of, you know, what we take in in the world, 95% goes into our unconscious and only 5% goes into our cognitive mind. So the unconscious is filled with our experience and information. So a lot of these arts, it's about tapping into that inner place and give yourself permission to express yourself from that place without judgment. I mean, Susan Salzberg says that, you know, art is the best form of med meditation. So, you know, if you're someone that can't meditate by sitting and doing nothing, here's some things that you can do that gets you to that same inner place. But the key is without, without judgment. Mm. But there's, there's also, you know, when you talk about looking at art, I mean, there, there is that sort of, um, uh, sort of stereotype that, of the, uh, that you go to an art, you know, an art gallery or an art museum and, and, and there's all the people who are very knowledgeable about it. And, and I look at it and being something of a Philistine, I don't know any of that stuff. And what I got from the book was that uh, that's okay. I don't need to understand it in an intellectual way because sometimes my body understands it even if I don't, because it goes, well, I like that. I can't explain why I like it, but I, would, I enjoyed standing in front of certain paintings for a good half hour. I couldn't intellectually justify why and why I, I ne the next one I went, oh, no, I just walked straight past it. <laughs> but it's as if some, something in here un understood something and liked it. <laughs> yeah, no, and you don't have, that's the point. You don't have to be knowledgeable. Your body, you're exactly right. There, there might be an emotional connection to something, even a color, a shape. Which you can't explain. Have, it doesn't matter. No, and it doesn't matter because when you have, as Susan described, these salient experiences, there's that emotional connection, a bodily. That's when new synapses happen, like fireworks go off. And then, you know, it prunes some of the old information because actually it's why doctors are in part writing prescriptions for people to go to museums. Put yourself, expose yourself to some new imagery, sculpture, and just feel how you feel. And, and because some people just won't even do that because of exactly what you said, they feel they're not knowledgeable enough. Um, but these things will make these connections on their own. And that's all you need to do is to be there and confront yourself with different shapes, colors, imagery, ideas. You know, Susan and I say, I think at the end of the book, the art of the future, that I think a lot of the art of the future will be immersive and sensorial, like walking into a painting to aliven your sensory systems, not just visual. Um, and there was a, an experience that she and I had at a, a group consortium called um, Chromasonic, which is immersive architects, sound, light artists, and they put together, a, a, you walk into a form that's almost womb shape and you lie down It's an open eye experience for 30 minutes where you're basically, the only way I could describe it is you're, 
you're hearing color and you're seeing sound. I mean, it totally disrupts what you, you, you immediately get out of your cognitive mind because you can't figure it out. And you be when you walk out of there, you become fully present. I mean, she and I looked at each other and it's like radical presence because we it forced us to get out of our minds and into our bodies in this new sensorial experience. And I think that's what we're, whether we're, we know it or not, we're craving, you know, as a society. And people are, you know, on the scale, some people are gravitating toward um, psychedelics or mushrooms. And there's varying degrees of getting out of your cognitive mind. But I think this is something available to the masses, which is, you know, um, because that's when we feel alive. We forgot. You know, we've been focusing on productivity in the cognitive mind, but when we really feel alive, it's when our senses are ignited. You know, during COVID um, in South Korea, they there was a kind of a movement um, called Hanging Mung, um, M-U-N-G. And it's there were these videos that were made and circulated for people to be able to look up in the sky, just look at clouds, all these different cloud movings, because they weren't able to get outside. And so this idea of the sensorial stimulation, even when you're so closed in, and I mean, you mentioned this idea of, um, you know, you have, you know, you have to be knowledgeable to go to a museum and you feel almost inferior. And I think one of the myth busters that Ivy and I are really trying to bring forward is that um, there are certain things that we've been told that just aren't true. And, and one of them is, um, you know, doodling and, and creating art is a waste of time. Another one is that you have to be good at it. Another one is that you have to have been trained in order to have an appreciation for art. And, you know, it's interesting that when Van Gogh was um, painting, you know, after he, he never sold a painting when he was alive, when he died and then his brother died, his brother's wife um, inherited these paintings that nobody wanted. And she said that they really moved her, that they were so emotional. There was so much uh, feeling and context in those paintings. Like she felt grief, she felt lost, she felt despair. And she took them to a gallery owner and said, these are really, this is a new way to visually express feelings. And that hadn't been done before, or it hadn't been, it hadn't been popularized in a way. And so, you know, when you think about in different eras, in different times, society tells us what is valuable and what's not valuable. And we stop thinking about what we think is valuable. Um, you know, I love when you said I stood in front of a painting for 30 minutes because most people stand in front of a painting for three seconds. That's all the time that they have in order to take in the richness of an image and, and not to understand, you know, what the painter has said, but what their, what it's, what the painting is saying to them. So it, it, it's such a great opportunity to, for self-reflection and, and for also what's called perspective taking. Well, Susan, you should share on that note, the story of, you know, taking doctors to stand in front of paintings with those three questions. Cause I think that really resonates with what you're saying. Yeah, sure. So there's work being done. It's called visual teaching strategies and medical schools are beginning to use this for medical students. And um, they take uh students to a gallery, it could be, or a mural in a city, but some piece of artwork, a sculpture, and um, it's moderated by um, a facilitator. And there's basically three questions. The first question is, what do you see? And everybody answers that without judgment. What do you see? 
The second question is, what else do you see? And then the third question is, is there anything else that you see? And for 30 minutes or so, people share what they see. And what it, it does a couple of things. One is it helps to know that there are many more things to see than you might think. Two, that uh, when you understand what other people see, your knowledge base grows. And three, that you can have empathy and understanding by just witnessing something. And so medical students are coming back into grand rounds and into um, their primary practices in, in medical schools, and they are becoming better observers and better listeners and, and not looking at someone as a symptom or a disease, but as a whole sort of piece of art that has many layers and that are not hierarchically um, the way that they might have thought they were. And it's changing the way medicine is happening. But as an individual to stand in front of the painting and ask yourself that same question to just get to the inner, you know, to go down a couple of layers to the emotion or to the feeling versus, you know, you may say you see a ship on water, but now, and what else do you see, you know, beyond that? Hmm. It's, it's, it gets to our definition of ourselves. You can say, what do you see? Well, what do we mean by you? I mean, is it the, is it the rational brain that said, well, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a picture of a 1952 Chevy or something. Whereas there are other parts of you, because you talk about neuroaesthetics, but I'm just thinking of the fact that there's a very large number of neurons in the heart and an even large number of neurons in the gut. So, when I look at it, presumably my heart is looking at it and my intestines are looking at it. And presumably they're thinking their own thoughts, which I might not hear about. You're hearing about them. <laughs> well, okay, no, you're right. I do hear about them. But I always think of myself as a bit like the Ronald Reagan of my own mind. I'm the, I'm the fellow who sits behind the desk and talks to everyone else. But I just receive a lot of memos from elsewhere. You know? Well, and that we should talk about the default mode network, right? Because that's that part of the brain. And, you know, your whole body, not just your brain, is being moved by sensorial experiences, right? Arts and aesthetics. It, it totally interconnected systems of the endocrine system and the um, immune system, circulatory system, you know, all of the pulmonary systems. All your systems are being engaged. Um, you know, even you think about skin and touch and how many neurons and nerves are being activated as you're touching something or you're feeling the temperature of, of a space. But the default mode network is something that we're learning more and more about and the saliency network where, you know, when you're not bringing in information, your brain is processing or you are processing all of that information. So what do you like? What do you think is beautiful? You mind wander, you daydream, you know, you think about it. Um, you talk to yourself, right? You, 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 you know, it may be, you may not even have answers, but you certainly are trying to understand how you feel. And so we need that downtime too, to be able to pause and let all of that information um, process. So we, we know ourselves. Hey there. I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hmm. Um, 
Would you mind if I started telling, asking you some of the questions that are coming in? Of course. Soraya asks, how will AI interact with our minds as they are today? Threat or opportunity to humanity? Guessing that's one for you, Ivy. Sorry. Yeah, no, I think it's, you know, like I said, you a lot of things gone awry could be a problem. So I think that it is both, right? I think it's a threat and an opportunity. And I think we have to focus it on the opportunity. And I think it offers an opportunity for us to be more imaginative and creative with what we do with it. Um, and that's the part that I know we are focusing on and that as a society, we should focus on. Made me think about reward. You know, if, you know, reward is so important for humans. And I think that's a great thing. You know, we want to feel pleasure. We want to feel joy. Um, and, you know, humans have this capacity to have wonder and joy. And I think that's something that we need to keep coming back to in this AI conversation is like, what does it mean to be human? What is human nature? Um, and human nature and AI are not the same thing. Right. And how do we co-create together? I mean, I think we don't even understand with generative art or generative AI, like what we will be doing with it that will take it to another level because we can't even imagine it yet. It's not in our realm of imagination. We have to start playing with it and seeing. Christine picks up on something you were just talking about, Susan. She says, when I make art or look at the world as a beautiful place, my joyful feelings are felt somewhere in my midriff. I find this hard to explain. Is this, is this, neuro, is this a neuro connection? <laughs> well, the short answer is absolutely. I, I think she's talking about sort of the solar plexus space which is often a place that is activated, that we have that, that sort of physical, physiological sense. And also this whole brain gut connection, I think sort of ties into that. And even, I love that you're even identifying parts of your physiology that you're feeling that kind of response to. And I know when I have that feeling in my solar plexus, I always pay attention because I, I know that it's super important. Like it's, a, it's for me, and, you know, for somebody else, it might be um, a different part of their bodies, um, you know, because we're, we are so different and our physiologies are so different, but that solar plexus comes up often as kind of, it's the place in right in front of the aorta. That's the kind of location that I think she's thinking of. Um, so no, I think that's fabulous. But don't we even know today that the gut and brain are entirely connected, right? Mm -hmm. The important thing is you're listening to it, though. You know, you know, Susan, you say, you know, you listen to it. You don't sort of go, oh, well, I don't know what that was, and maybe I've got indigestion and, and, and pass on. You're, you're saying, no, this is, this is something I ought to listen to. Is this something that we as a society maybe need to start to listen to this and not be deaf to it? Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, even I get chills when, when I know something is true, and I'm talking not just in art but in business. There's a sensation that comes over my, business, uh, my body, it's a certain chill that runs through the entire body. And I'll, I've now gotten confident enough to say out loud, oh, my God, I just got a chill. And then my team, like people around me know, oh, my God, we have to go that way. <laughs> you <know>? so, <laughs> yeah. And sometimes you like Ivy's identifying what what her chill is. It's a reaction. Sometimes you get that sensation and you know it's important and you don't know why it's important. And that's when you can do things like expressive writing or collaging or, you know, I'm talking it as a non-artist who, you know, I make things all the time and I, I, 
you know, I make them because I need to, I make them to know, I make them to understand. There's a lot of research that really talks about that ability to use our different expressive forms to understand what you're feeling. And I, I, I can say a hundred percent when I make a piece of art after having a feeling that I can't name, I can get myself to it. And that's in part because sometimes, you know, your parts of your brain that form language either shut down because of the extreme trauma, or you literally cannot find words. And these, again, very basic physiological ways that we're wired by expressing ourselves in those different forms help us understand what we need to know. You know, in the book, we interview over 100 people. And one of them that we interview is a man who who wrote a book called Make to Know. And it's that whole idea. People think, oh, I can't make this because I don't know what I want to make. And actually it's in the making that the knowing reveals itself, like Susan says. So if you can really embrace that and approach it from that place, like even designers, when we design a product, sometimes we have a, a tiny glimpse, but you just have to start making and then it reveals itself. And then you learn in this case, when making art like this, you learn about yourself in a way you didn't even know about yourself. And I want to add to that because I think this is really important. What I was talking about those medical students, um, they when they do those te- those 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 things with paintings, those experiences with paintings, they have sometimes have them do um, so pre and post tests, and one of them is to- tolerance for ambiguity, and um, and also um, appetite for wonder. And tolerance for ambiguity is a very low, and so is wonder for medical students, but. Think about that. What is your tolerance for ambiguity um, in general? You know, most of us think, well, we want to know the right answer. We don't want to wait to understand. We don't want to be in that liminal space. But if you can have ambiguity, which means giving yourself enough enough time to understand something, to not know, something else emerges, things emerge that you could never expect because you allow that playful space in the middle and so I think ambiguity is something that we've been taught is not important. You, you got to know, you got to know the answer. You got to keep moving. But in fact, it's a huge asset. Well, I mean, how could you possibly read poetry without being comfortable with ambiguity? Because you'd be saying, well, yeah. was the man a lion or wasn't he? I don't know. <laughs> and I mean, yeah. a very accurate phone, a very, very accurate book is the phone book. It's, it's 100% accurate. But I'm not sure how entertaining it is. Anyway, um, um, an anonymous attendee says, do you have any more information related to the benefits of arts for Parkinson's disease as a, as a friend is recently struggling with it? Yes, yes. Um, I was going to mention Parkinson's earlier. So there's a group called Dance for PD. It's out of Mark Morris Dance Studio in New York. And um, they've done... Oh, three dozen studies over the last several years, maybe 10 years, that really begin to understand more about what's happening with Parkinson's and dance. And it turns out that dancing um, helps with gait, with tremors, cognition, sleep, and mood. And uh, during the pandemic, here's an example of where something as simple as Zoom has helped Parkinson's patients and also to study it. Most times patients, um, people with Parkinson's would go to a dance studio and dance, and maybe they'd dance once a week. But during COVID, they were able to dance online, sometimes every day, sometimes more than once a day. 
sometimes with their family members who would come online. And what they found was that people actually had uh, better sleep, better cognition, better mood, and better range of, of movement um, as they increased their um, exposure to dance. And so Parkinson's is a disease where dopamine stops being made. And so it isn't dopamine that is being um, manufactured, but serotonin, endorphins, even adrenaline, other neurotransmitters and hormones are being supplemented to help regulate the things that um, someone with Parkinson's is losing. And so it's extraordinary. Um, and so highly recommend dance and movement. Um, and uh, you can go on the Mark Morris uh, website, Dance for PD. And there's tons of really great information. I just got an email recently from someone who has Parkinson's who said that um, uh, haiku, reading haiku has actually been very helpful for him with um, Parkinson's. And um, I don't know the science behind that, but people are sending us, and we encourage listeners to send us your stories. We'd love to know what's working for you and whatever area you're thinking and using the arts for. Um, and there are many. So um, I, I just found that fascinating. I have to do some research to see if anybody is studying that. But, you know, we always say artists have gotten there first and in, in using the arts for health and well-being and research is catching up. And so I think there'll be a lot more. There's a lot of great research, thousands of studies. But I think more and more we get specific about what are we trying to understand and how can we use it? It's very, it's a very exciting time. Yeah. And there's, a, we have a website, you know, www.yourbrainonart.com where there's a place to submit your story because we'd love to collect these. And who knows, we may get some insights and say research should validate this. <laughs> Antonia says, what is a non-artist? Surely we're all artists. Oh, I couldn't agree more. I think we all are all artists. And I think we've been told that we're not, right? And so, I mean, there's certainly people that are professional artists who make their living as artists. And thank the, thank the Lord, thank the world that we have these amazing artists that we can hear and, and, and see and watch. Um, but we all are artists. And I think that's been one of the things that's been taken away, away from us. Yeah. Can I just add a related question? Joanna says, are art forms innate or do we need to be introduced to them? Well, if you know, if you have little kids or if you've seen little kids, um, you know that many of them are highly innate. And then I, you know, dancing, singing, you know, for sure. And even once we learn to write, you know, we can't help but express ourselves. But there are new art forms being invented all the time. I mean, maybe share Refix work because it's such a great example of an artist marrying art and technology for a whole new way of being. Yeah, Refik Anadol is, is actually in this case, you know, who knew that this would happen, but using through AI, like going to the Museum of Modern Art and uploading all their images over time of their objects, and then using the algorithm to create new images. They're almost like digital paintings that are made of the historic images from the museum. So that's what I mean about technology can make us more creative. You know, there'll be new art forms coming up online that we just have to create or pay attention to or invent. Um, but so I, I think it's both and again, you know, it's innate and it'll be opportunistic. There's a lovely question from uh, Rory. It sort of relates to this, says, 
Does the experience of human-made art differ from the experience of natural beauty? Does knowing that a human hand has been involved change our experience and its effects? What a great question. Yeah, that's a great question. And and in fact, it does. So the work of Anjan Chatterjee, uh, who is a neuroscientist at University of Pennsylvania, has done some really interesting work on this. And universally, meaning all over the world, we know that landscapes and natural environments, we pretty much all have agreement on those. We also have agreement on um, face and uh, physical physical face and, and to a certain extent, physical beauty. And, and that's cultural. That can be totally cultural, but we have this sort of sense of, of beauty. When it comes to human-made things, human-built environments, human art, we differ greatly about what we um, agree on and, and could confer around. And in part, that has to do with life experience. Culture is a huge variable in where we come from and what we're what we've learned is in beautiful. Um, also, child development um, and and how we were raised make, makes a really big difference. But we're very subjective about that and very individualized. So, Saidi was saying, you know, all of our experiences for each of us make our brains and bodies uniquely ours. Nobody has the same system. So when I say, oh my gosh, that painting is beautiful. And Ivy says, I love that painting. It's beautiful. What she means by beautiful and what I mean by beautiful um, may intersect, but there's going to be differences because of where we came from, what we believe in, what our life experiences are. And so I think we we tend to sort of think beauty is beauty, but it 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 is very particular and very specific. So it's the particular in the universal that happens with things that humans create. And I think the question was also around: Am I wrong about how the human things made with the human hand? We may have a different reaction to than non handmade things. Yeah, and I I mean I think it's subtle. I know I can tell the difference. I don't think there's ever been any, or maybe Susan, there has been research on um, that difference of whether, you know, I, I've studied subtle energy. So I believe there's a different energy that's transmitted from an object that was made with someone's own hands versus potentially something made by a machine. I know I can feel it, but I don't know whether there's any science to that. Yeah. Not specifically that I know of. Um, I just wanted to see if we can get through one or two more questions because there's hundreds and I apologise to all the people we can't get to, but there's just too many questions. Can we reduce inflammation caused by stress through interaction with the creative arts? That's a great question. I mean, inflammation in some ways, I think is from the neuroscience point of view is the holy grail, right? And there have been some small studies that have been looking at inflammation and around endocrine and immune system and looking at reducing inflammation. And I think it's very plausible, um, you know, with reducing cortisol, if you're lowering stress load, if you're looking at things like uh, variable heart rate, um, respiration, you're starting to create the conditions for lowering inflammation. Um, so I think that's a, a, a line of inquiry that's really worth exploring. And I mentioned the parasympathetic nervous system where you're activating the vagus nerve, right? The parasympathetic nervous system is the system that you really want to regulate because that's that that's part of this, the limbic system that kind of gets really um, overactivated. So I think it's a reasonable idea and, and something that some a little, there's been a few studies that have begun to look at that. 
Okay, last question. Um, uh, Rose says, do either of you believe engaging with children's literature contributes or can contribute to a notion of radical presence? I love, well, children's drawings. I once, I have this catalog on my shelf called The Innocent Eye. It was an exhibit of, I think it was out of London actually years ago, of children's drawings paired next to famous artists to show that that innocent eye, that to me, that's the most potent because it's when we're, uh, and the same thing with, with stories. I know my, my daughter used to make up stories. It brought the most joy and awe to me because I think it's those little souls have not yet been polluted by any other people's thinking. It's straight from the heart, straight from their soul. So I think it touches us, you know, both their art and their stories because it's, it's pure heart to heart. So that's, that's my unresearched opinion. Uh, I was going to say, um, I'll add to that from my perch, which is, um, you know, there's some great studies about reading about fiction and really looking at this idea of reading is an opportunity to be able to put yourself in another character's life at a very low risk. And we get lost in books because we want to try on these diff- these other worlds, these other places. And if any anybody on the call who has ever gotten lost in the Phantom Toll booth or in um or any any I like fantasy adventure, and, um, but any mystery where, or any kind of fiction where you are totally absorbed, you go to another place. And I think that different than radical presence, I would say you are radically within yourself. You know, it takes you to another place and within you and, and it's incredibly um, healing. And uh, there's a lot of interesting research around young readers who actually have much greater resiliency, much greater um, adaptability, um, because they have more context to the world, even though they may have never left their hometown. So um, yeah, a shout out to reading or audiobooks or you know, any of those ways that we can um, learn through learn through the arts. And I we said visual arts too, but I, I yeah, I think it's super important. Listen, um, Susan, Ivy, I wish I could carry on chatting to you, um, but we can't. So listen, thank you both very, very much indeed for chatting to us. And um, I hope you'll come back and see us again. What a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, it was really fun. Thank you. This episode starred Susan Maximan and Ivy Ross. The presenter was David Malone. It was produced by Luke Naylor Perrett, and I make this series with Esme Bright and Nicole Wong. Our editor is John Doughty. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Till next time, thanks for listening.